If you mind, mind flipping over to uh, Romans chapter 10, and uh, we'll continue our study through Romans this morning. <clears throat> Last week we looked at Romans chapter 9, um, and a lot of these chapters, you know, they have a lot to do with uh, will and foreknowledge and predestination, and we've uh, tried to navigate those topics in a, in a biblical sense of uh, the free will of human beings and, and God you know, inviting Adam to name the animals and different things like that, and not just as puppets, versus God's sovereignty, and, and that he is sovereign yet allows things. And a couple weeks ago, and last week also, we looked at this, the idea here uh, that ultimately God tells us through Romans 8 and Romans 9 that his sovereignty in saving people works through foreordination in, in a sense that he knows a person, right, Romans chapter 8, that he says that he, those whom he foreknew, he did also predestined, predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And so that ultimately the, the destiny of the believer is to be conformed in the image of Jesus. It's a destiny. It's just like Star Wars, right? This is your destiny. A destiny is a destiny. It doesn't matter if it's Greek, English, or what. A destiny means destiny, that it is something that you are destined for. And so what happened is God, in foreknowledge, knew who would choose him and who would not choose him. And he gave the people that he knew, and that the word there is prognosko, and it's the idea in Greek, and it's the idea to know extensively or deep relationship. And the people that he knew that would choose him, he gave them a destiny, and he called them, and, and they would be saved. Every single human being on the planet has a genuine and authentic offer to salvation. That's really important. There's nobody that was predestined to hell and that had no option and wanted to get saved and it couldn't happen or whatever. And then in chapter 9, he's, Paul begins chapter 9 talking about his heart for the Jews. He himself being of Jewish descent, saying, if I could, I would find myself accursed. It literally would say, I could wish that I would be accursed if it would mean that all the Jews would get saved. And then he's in, in, in the vein of sovereignty, he begins to talk about sovereign choices that God has made. Uh, that God sovereignly chose Abraham uh, to, to give a promise to, and that that promise would go to all uh, human beings, that blessing would come through them. Now, he's not talking about salvation in chapter 9. He talked about the fact that he, he wants the Jews to be saved. But really, chapter 9 is not about individual people getting saved. It's about God calling people and giving them a ministry. So God sovereignly chose Abraham. And the Jews were fine with that, right? Because they're descendants of Abraham. And then God sovereignly chose Isaac and God sovereignly chose Jacob. And the Jews rejoiced in that because they were, you know, seminal children of Jacob. And then he says that God used Pharaoh and chose Pharaoh. And if we, we talked about it in detail, if we were to go back to Genesis, uh, Pharaoh not, that, uh, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and it says that, Pharaoh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's seven times each that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And it's seven times that God hardened his heart. And, and Paul makes the statement that God used Pharaoh's hardness of heart and in his foreknowledge solidified Pharaoh's decision and then used him to uh, remove or to push out the children of Israel from Egypt. So you, you have two examples in the positive sense of God's sovereignty, not choosing who will be saved and who not will be saved, but choosing the, the, who he will reveal himself to and who he will use for this specific task. 
And then you see one negative example of a person who decides that they will harden themselves to God. And we, we talked about that more in detail with the, the plagues and how there was opportunity over and over again for Pharaoh to turn from uh, his, his obstinance. And he chose not to. And so God uses that in his foreknowledge and essentially seals the deal. And then Pharaoh is elevated in wickedness and then judged later. Now, as we, as we kind of go on from chapter 9, then Paul's going to talk about uh, essentially some of the interaction that God had with the Jews and the fact that God has sovereignly now revealed the gospel to Gentiles, that he made a sovereign choice once the Jews began to in mass reject the gospel. Because remember, uh, in the early church, like day one, the vast majority of the church was Jewish, right? Because where did the church start? It started in Jerusalem on feast days, right? The day of Pentecost and these things. So you have this, these 3,000 people getting saved and later on thousands more getting saved, mostly Jews. But if you uh, chronicle the life of the church in the book of Acts and so forth, uh, even up till today, the, the church is largely Gentile. So the, a lot of chapter 9 is about the fact that God also chose to, choose to save Gentiles. And so the Jews weren't super excited about that. Then, as we get into uh, chapter 9, verse 30, the end of, the, of chapter 9, Paul says this, and he's, he's getting done uh, talking about the fact that God chose Gentiles, but that the, uh, the Israelites uh, mostly rejected God, but God preserved a remnant. And it says there in verse 30, what shall we say then? So Paul's now asking this rhetorical question, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the result of the sovereign decisions made in chapter 9 by God, what ends up happening is in, in large, remember Israel is, is, a, is a nation, and, and he's speaking in, in generalities about Israel, but it's made up of individuals. And so each individual has to come to their own conclusion. It's not, he's not just saying that all Israel just got kind of slated or painted with this one broad stroke, and that's what happened. He's not saying that. He's just using Israel as a, as a, uh, a nation in a, in, in a general sense. And so what he says is that they did not, in, in, as a nation, that they didn't enjoy or appropriate God's righteousness. Not that he is intrinsically righteous, but that God's righteousness for us. That they sought out something, Gentiles sought it out by faith, but the Jews sought it out not by faith, but by accomplishing a law, doing things in the law to try to achieve righteousness. So that's where we pick up. Uh, well, actually, one more thing. Then he quotes, Paul quotes there in verse uh, 33, he he's, reads a quote about Jesus, an Old Testament prophecy, that he's laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So the Jews, trying to find their own righteousness, when Christ came, and, and basically, if you remember some of the teachings, they were pretty stark. Uh, John chapter 6, where Jesus, uh, he, he's talking to the masses, and he says to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. 
And so obviously that was a hard teaching. Everybody kind of went, whoa, what are we talking about? And there's been some weird applications from that to try to link it to communion and so forth. But really in the end there of chapter 6, Jesus says, he says no, my words are spirit and they're life. In other words, he tells them, I'm not talking about my body and my blood. I'm not saying that you need to chomp me and, and drink my blood. That's, that's cannibalism. That's weird. He's not saying that. But what he's saying, and they understood it, because what he's saying is this. Unless you ingest me, Jesus, unless you, your all, your food, your sustenance is me, you have no life in yourselves. In other words, you cannot do anything to have real, abundant, true life outside of Christ. And that's a very offensive statement. And so the, the, it says that many of his disciples, when they heard that, disciples, people that were following him, they followed him no more. So the, the idea that over and over again is presented in the New Testament, uh, whether it's Romans or, or John or wherever, that there's no good that dwells in human beings, and the only good that can come out of a human would be what Christ places in there with uh, uh, his Holy Spirit. So it's important to understand that when the Jews were attempting to find righteousness by law, the idea that it could come by faith through the sacrifice of Christ was very offensive. Does that make sense? In other words, they rejected it. We do the same thing. I mean, this is not uncommon to human beings. If we are finding, imagine, uh, it really could be kind of any kind of venue where we esteem ourselves to be something. You know, just think of anything where you thought to yourself, hey, I'm really something. I'm really great. Uh, we can use church, for example. If we are uh, trying to get to God in our own private lives by works, and what I mean by that is we observe works as a means by which God will give us approval, okay? And so then we start doing stuff at the church. Oh, I'm going to join kids ministry. I'm going to take the trash out. I'm going to do, you know, whatever it might be. And then we, as we accomplish those things, we get a sense of righteousness, I, I set out to do what I, what I said would make me righteous and right with God, and then I do that thing. So if somebody comes along and says, actually, you're no righteous than the heroin addict hanging out outside who just received Jesus, we go, whoa, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm an usher here. Like, there's no way that we have the same standing with God. We begin to think we're something because we try to attain it by the law. And so when someone comes along with the truth, which is that our only right standing with God is through faith and what Christ did, it becomes very offensive to us. And we just say, there's, there's just no way. We, we say it more like this. I'm not that bad. I'm not like them. I've never murdered anyone. That's how, that's how we express it. And what we're saying is, I'm actually righteous because of what I've done. And so Paul says that as a nation, the Jews, because they completely misunderstood the Old Covenant and what it pointed to, that that's where they ended up. And so he, he comes to chapter 10 and verse 1. He says, Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, as that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law uh, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul expresses, even though they've fallen into this pit, excuse me, his desire is still that they would be saved. And then he says this, he, goes, he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. In other words, they had this zeal. They were, uh, in a sense, their zeal was for righteousness. It was to get to God. 
but it was not according to knowledge. It was not correct in the way they, they went about it. So they were pursuing God in this wrong way. Now, it's not a thing of complete innocence because he goes on and he makes some comments about it. And he says that for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. So it's what he's, he's expanding on what we just read in chapter 9 and he's showing us what happened to Israel is that they were ignorant of God's righteousness. They weren't ignorant that God is righteous. They weren't ignorant that God uh, wants people to be righteous, but they were ignorant as to how the righteousness of God could be applied to them. And this is a little bit odd because it's in their scriptures too. Whether you look at uh, you know, Psalm 32 where Paul, or excuse me, Paul, no, he's not alive yet, where David talks about the fact that there's blessed forgiveness of iniquity. Uh, you know, the, 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 this idea of faith that throughout all the Old Testament, there's constantly references to being forgiven by faith, even though there is the sacrificial um, system in place. David's a good example of that. David commits adultery. David has a man killed. David ends up killing a bunch of guys from his own army, all to cover up his adultery with this woman whom he impregnates. And then 13 months go by. The prophet shows up, and Nathan shows up and says, hey, let me tell you a little story. There was a rich man, there was a poor man. The poor man had one sheep, and it was his favorite sheep. It actually sat on his bench next to him, or actually they kind of reclined. You know, it sat on next to him when they ate, and he loved the sheep. The kids loved the sheep. Everybody loved the sheep. And then this rich guy has a visitor. And the, the, the rich guy goes to the guy who has one sheep, even though this rich guy has a ton of sheep. And he grabs that one sheep, and he just slaughters it, and he takes it and feeds it to his visitor. And David goes, of a truth, that man will die. And Nathan goes, you're that man. And 13 months of conviction and guilt and shame come flooding in. And he says, you're right. He says, you're right. He writes Psalm 51. You know, the Psalm, probably many of us are familiar with that Psalm of repentance and this idea of wanting to come back to God. And Nathan tells him, don't worry. Your sin has been forgiven you. That was not the law. The law was death. But he's forgiven by faith. It's an interesting, an interesting uh, dynamic that's at work in the Old Testament. So Israel sought for their own justification. That's why they miss Christ. They sought to justify themselves by their works, and when Christ came and revealed himself to them, he, they were unable and unwilling to accept that righteousness because they were seeking their own. It says they did not submit to God's righteousness. Again, kind of in our example before about doing good works and, and associating those with our, God being satisfied with us. This is the end of it. This is where it goes. They, we don't submit to God's righteousness. We just say, no, it can't be that way. It can't really be by grace. It can't really be by the blood. It's got to be by the blood and baptism. That's what it's got to be. It's got to be by the blood and circumcision. It's got to be by the blood and KJV Bible. It's got to be by the blood and speaking in tongues. It has to be by the blood, fill in the blank. There's a million things, isn't there, out there in Christendom? They say it's, it's this plus this. Whereas the reality is that righteousness comes by faith in what Christ did at Calvary. And so Paul, while he's expressing this deep regret for the Jews and their desire to be saved, chapter 10 is a really a lot, well, it's all about how God is working among the Jews and how, you know, the desire for the Jews to, to be saved and their response to it. Even though it's also applicable to the Gentiles or to Gentile uh, believers, it's, it's really pointed at where the Jews are at. So he's going to go on in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
One of the difficult things about Christianity today, and not everybody, I'm not here to pick on people. That's, that's not my goal at all. But have you ever kind of gotten the feeling that we kind of live in like this mixed covenant? It's like a mixture between the old and the new covenant. And, and what do I mean by that? Like when we try to appropriate promises that were given to Israel, when we try to say, well, these are our promises and this and this, you know, things that God said to Israel, I will do this and I'll bring you into the land and I'll do these things for you. And then what happens is, and it's okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to be rude about it, but you'll see those things on greeting cards and, you know, get better cards and all these type of things. But the important thing is those were not promises to the church. The old covenant is the old covenant. And we're going to look at some pretty stark scriptures that talk about what the Old Covenant is. I'm not saying don't have a Seder. I'm not saying don't you know, sleep in a tent outside if you want to during the Feast of Booths. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that to try to appropriate those things into our lives or use those things in other people's lives to promote godliness is wrong. Because we're not in the Old Covenant anymore. So what this says is in chapter 4 is this. That the law ended with Christ. Literally, the determined termination of the law was in Christ. So for everyone who gets saved, the whole point of the law ends. It no longer applies to the believer. Now, we've talked about that in great detail because it's in Romans 4, it's in Romans 5, 6, and 7. Over and over again, we're told that the believer dies to the law, is separated from the law, and separated from their sin nature, and no longer has power over them. And so now Paul is saying this, and he, and he puts it so clearly. He says, look, for Christ is the end of the law. You could, be, you could say determined uh, termination or the end goal. All mean the same thing, that Christ is the end of the law for anyone who believes. So to try to use Old Covenant promises or curses or whatever it might be to the believer is not the case. No, I'm not saying you can't turn to Jeremiah and be excited about that he had good promises to Israel, that he had good plans for them and for peace and hope. But if you continue reading that same passage, do you know what comes next? If you don't follow me, comes curses and death and destruction. I've never seen that in a greeting card. Right? I've never had like, hey, you know, someone write me a letter and be like, God has plans for you. They're really great. It's a great verse, but it's to Israel. It's not to you. Now, does God have great plans for you? Sure he does. And, and we, can, we can appropriate those things. But if we're going to start taking and, and piecing, taking pieces of the old covenant and applying to ourselves, all I'm saying, it's a dangerous thing to do. Because now we're picking and choosing out of something that he said was the end. It was ended for every believer as it pertains to righteousness. He's going to go on, if you wouldn't mind, uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You might say, James, why are you picking on the old covenant so much? Why do you hate the Jews? No, it's not that at all. I love freedom. And I love what Jesus did for me and what he did for you. And so it's a, it's a, it's, it can be very destructive to try to shrink back to old covenant promises and premises to try to live my new covenant life. Paul has some really, really radical things to say. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about being ministers of the new covenant and, and different, and, and, and that's and the like. Go, go back and read it. But we're going to start in verse 4. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, For such is the confidence that we have through, uh, through Christ toward God. 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is of God. So he's talking about being ministers of the new covenant. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the first thing he says about the old covenant is that it kills. And he says, we're not ministers of the old covenant. That's not what we're ministering. We're ministers of the Spirit. Because the letter kills. And remember, that's what Romans told us. What does the law do? It brings wrath. It brings guilt. Right? It reveals sin. It cannot make a person righteous. It cannot. He's going to go on. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end. So he says, the ministry of death. So we've been told the letter kills, and we're like, oh, well, maybe that's not really the law. Maybe he's talking about something else. Uh, no, he's talking about whatever ministry was carved in stone and tablets. What was carved in stone and tablets that we know of? The Ten Commandments. So what does he say that happened? What's, what's the story of the Ten Commandments? Number one, they're the ministry of death. They're not the ministry of life. They're not the ministry of the Spirit. They're not the ministry of Jesus. The Ten Commandments are the ministry of death. They had a purpose, and it was to show you and I that we will die and that we deserve it because we break God's commandments. In fact, in Galatians, he's even going to tell, uh, well, it's a kind of a mini Romans, but in Galatia, he writes to them and he says, look, the law was a tutor, a, a schoolmaster. And it was designed to point us to Christ. But now that we have Christ, we don't look to the law anymore. as any kind of justification or condemnation. That Christ is the end of the law. That the law is a ministry of death and it kills. And then he says, he says, hey, it had glory, right? And Moses' face shined or shone because of the glory. He's going to mention that again here, but it's interesting because when he writes later on to the Corinthians, he says that Moses wore the veil not because he was just so darn shiny that they couldn't stand looking at him, because every time he'd leave the, 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 uh, the tabernacle, the shine would go away. And he wanted to hide the fact from the children of Israel that the glory went away. But he's going to go on here and he's going to talk about it. He's going to say, uh, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have more glory? So if that had weight and, and good opinion, the, the ministry of death, then won't the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. So what has Paul called the old covenant up till now? Kills, death, condemnation, and fading glory. Does that like sound something like we want to minister to people? Does that sound like something, hey, this is really good. We should really bring this and be, make this part of our lives and really... Or is the message more like, hey, it had a purpose. It had a purpose with Israel at a certain time and a place to govern a country. Well, first a person, right, and his wife. But then when Moses comes and he gives the law, that was to govern a country. It was to give them health laws. It was a country with no police, no prisons, no governors, no senators, no president, none of that. You had Moses and you had God. Well, you had Aaron too, in a sense. And so that, that, that covenant came to those people in that time to execute certain things. 
and give them a way of forgiveness and to all point to Messiah, right? The whole law pointed to Christ's coming. That was the whole purpose of it. It never forgave sin. It smeared over it, right? That's what Hebrews tells us. The blood of bulls and goats never forgave sin. It says it blotted it out. But when Christ came in the new covenant with the perfect blood, what does it say? John the Baptist points at him and says what? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away, completely removes the sin of the whole world. So when we as believers, again, I'm not saying like don't read the Old Testament. I'm not saying that the Old Testament's worthless. I'm not saying that there's nothing to be learned there. Paul tells us that it was written aforetime for, for our benefit that we could read it and that we could understand it and not fall under the same example of unbelief. We have the New Testament today, and we can read it and consider it today, and the purpose of that is so that we can observe and say, I don't want to go that way. I don't want to be that. It's not so that we can look at the promises to Israel and go, well, if I'm naughty, God's going to disperse my family across the whole world. Because you can't claim the promises and reject the curses if you're going to live in the old covenant, it's a, it's, a, it's a package deal. But the new covenant, those curses aren't applied to the new covenant people. That was for a time and a place. The law wasn't, isn't accounted to believers. It's not, we're dead to it. It's not, it's not by which we're judged. Because Christ was judged for us. So he goes on, he's talking about the glory, and he says this. For if, verse 11, if, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will uh, what is permanent have glory. So now he's making another point here. The old covenant was brought to an end. Maybe that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, it is finished. The old covenant was brought to an end. But he says the new covenant is permanent. Now, are we saying that God is done with the Jews? No, we're not saying that. Chapter 11 is all about the fact that God is still working in the Jews and one day will bring them to reign, those who trust in him. Remember, we went through the whole thing in chapter 9 and other places, chapter 2, that the true Jew is not one who is one because they were born in the lineage, but one who trusts God. So we're not saying that, but what we are saying is that it was, a temp- it was temporal. It gets even uh, more bold. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when, we, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because, uh, excuse me, because only through Christ is it taken away. Now, over and over again, we see this word ended. It's... It's, in, it's the root word in Greek is obsolete. It's obsolete. So Paul is not just saying it's the old covenant like it was yesterday's covenant or it was, you know, a couple millennia ago. What he's saying is that the old covenant to the believer, it's ending, it's obsolete, it's served its purpose. So I'm not trying to pick on the Old Covenant. That's not my heart at all. I'm not trying to say, obviously, I think it's obvious. I'm not saying it's worthless. I'm not saying that it didn't have a place. I'm just saying it's not for us. It's not for us to try to appropriate into our lives because Christ was the end of the law for us. 
So we never go back to the law to find any kind of standing between God and us. We can see God's heart in the law. We can see the, the, the conclusions that were drawn by Jesus and John and others that, that the whole of the law and the prophets is fulfilled in this one idea that you love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God. So really, we don't go back to the law for that. We have New Testament principles. We have New Testament promises. Those promises will be fulfilled, but we read it. They're ending. They're not forever. The new covenant is permanent. So feel free to have old covenant greeting cards. I'm not trying to like be rude about it. But just know they're not to you. <laughs> The concept is cool. The concept, I love the Psalms. I'm all about the Psalms. You're like, clearly, David was a messed up dude. And he had wild mood swings. I mean, you can read that in the Psalm. You have like, what is it, Psalm 13, where he's like, God appear to me lest I sleep the sleep of death. And then in the next song, he's like, I went to the house of the Lord and danced all around. You're like, whoa, which was it? Like, what's going on? And the Psalms are great. But just chalk them up for what they are. They're inspired by God in a time and a place for people, and we get to read them, and we get to rejoice with them. But we're not condemned by them, right? That's important. We're not condemned by anything in the Old Covenant because it's dead to us, and Christ was the end of it for us. So there's nothing, I'm not trying to say anything negative about the Old Covenant. I'm saying for us, there's wild freedom. Not wild to do whatever we want, but freedom from sin to love. Freedom from sin to to do away with our own things and instead invite the things of Christ into our life. Freedom to be kind. Freedom, you know, not to be condemned. Every day, not to be condemned. Every day, not to have God trying to get us. Not that he was ever doing that, but ultimately by the blood of Christ. So back in Romans chapter 10, he's going to go on and and talk more about Israel here. And he says there in verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does them, who does the commandments, shall live by them. Now, if we go back and we read that quote, what he's saying is essentially that you have to do all the law. So the righteousness that comes by the law, this is not a positive statement that Moses is making here. He's saying that if you're going to live by the law, you have to live by every single law. And James reiterates that, where he says that if, we're, if we break one law, we've broken, it's the same as we're as guilty as breaking all the law. Paul said the same thing in Romans, that if we're going to use the law as a source of righteousness, we can't pick and choose from it. We have to use all of it. And so he's just making, as he introduces this next portion here, he's just saying that Moses commented on the righteousness that comes by the law. And it was not a good comment. It was the fact that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You could actually live and never die, kind of, if you Commit, did all the, if, if you never sinned. But that's impossible. We've all seen like one-year-old kids, right? Let's just be honest. If that one-year-old had the strength of an 18-year-old, it would kill you and take its lollipop <laughs> and not think twice about it until it was hungry again. I mean, humans are wild in that way. Have you ever seen, I mean, you've seen like two-year-olds try to hit people, haven't you? Take a swing over what? Like a lollipop, a video game, yeah, that's pretty wild. That's who we are intrinsically. I never taught my kids that. Like, they didn't come up to me and be like, can I have something? I was like, shut up. No, that's not learned behavior. That's just sin coming out. He's going to go on, though, and now he's going to talk about, 
And, and this is all relating in the sphere of Israel could have received Jesus. Every Israelite could have. But instead, they tried to establish their own righteousness. And he says, look, Moses wrote about that, that it's impossible. And then he's going to quote Deuteronomy 30. It's, it's kind of a loose quote, but he's kind of paraphrasing. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is, who will bring Christ down. For who will send into the, uh, descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does what uh, righteousness by faith say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Do me a favor and, and flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Kind of like what we talked about last week. Whenever we see quotes, as, as Bible students, whenever we see quotes in the New Testament, we always want to read them from the Old Testament because it's going to give us understanding into what the author is saying. So in Deuteronomy, it's the, the word, our English word Deuteronomy is actually derived from the Latin Vulgate, and it just means second law. Or it's the, it's the second time that, that uh, Moses is giving the law. He is not giving the law to the people that came out of Egypt. They're all dead, other than the children. So it's not the first generation. This is the reiteration of the law to the children of Israel when the kids that were uh, uh, under the age of 20, when they were um, now full-grown, 38 years later, and now them and their children are going into the land. So this is Moses giving the law uh, that to uh, um, instruct them and give them something. He's about to die so when they go into the land. And he's talking about blessing and cursing and covenant and all these different things. And we can jump into verse 9. It says, The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. Who's that to? Israel. Right? Does that mean he doesn't make us fruitful? No, it doesn't mean that. But it also means that it's to Israel. Because if we scroll back up a little bit, then we're going to learn about what happens if they don't walk with him. And, and I don't think we're going to claim that either, that, because we're not condemned in Christ, right? So why would there be curses for us? For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. That's a wild statement. Just as a side note, what happened to all their fathers? They died in the wilderness, roaming around for 38 years. And yet he delighted in them. Isn't that interesting? When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And that's really what I want to read. When you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And just to note, and we can turn other places, but for time's sake, just here, it has always been about the heart and soul. Always. Notice he didn't say, when you turn to your God and you make all the right sacrifices. When you turn to your God and you sound the trumpets at the right times. When you wave the right offering. When you pour the right amount of wine over your sacrifices. When you pour the oil. When you throw away the bucket after you vomited in it. I mean, all just the, the whole gamut of Jewish law that's out there. He says, no, 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 no. God's going to work for you and delight to prosper you, the old covenant, when your heart and your soul turns to him. That's, that's really important, and especially as we look at what he's saying to, these, to the Jews. 
Verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So he's talking about the heart here. He's not saying that you're able to completely do the law. He's not saying that. What he's saying is you are able to receive what God has said to you and to draw near and live with your God. That's important. Because he's taking these words that were said to these people when they're about to enter the land. And what he's saying is, it is not too hard for you. You can't say to God, we don't understand what you're saying. We don't get this book. We need you to come to heaven and bring it to us. He goes, no, no, no. I've explained it to you. It's near you. God is not hiding it from you. He says, you can't say, send from heaven. It's already come. He's saying, you can't, it's too far. It's over the sea. It's unattainable. It's in the depths. He says, no, no, no. God has given it to you. He's given you the covenant. And then he says, it's near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. So what Moses is telling them is you are without excuse to go into the land and inherit all the good that God has for you. So when you look at Romans chapter 10 with a little bit of context here from the quote, it becomes a little bit more understandable that Paul is reusing these words of Moses about Jews. It's true for Gentiles too, but specifically about Jews that the gospel is not too far from them. This is a really important idea because it does away with this idea that Israel had no opportunity when we talks about blindness and veiled and these different things, that there is a context to that blindness and those veils. In fact, he's going to conclude in verse, 30, in verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held my hand out to a disobedient and contrary people. So Israel was blind because they allowed their blindness. The other point that's very important here is that if we try to say that, that, that God predestines to heaven and hell, then ver- chapter 10 is a lie. It's just a lie because the word is not near them. If God predestines someone to hell, they could very much turn here and say, look, the word's not near me. It's not in my power to do it. If total depravity and irresistible grace and all these tenets of, the, the, of TULIP, the five pillars of Calvinism, I'm not trying to hurl insults at Calvinists. I, I absolutely know some great folks. But this, this idea, this doctrine, that somehow God predestined people to hell, that means that the word is not near them, and it's not in their mouth, and they cannot do it, which means this is a lie. Either, you have, either every human being on the planet has an honest ability and possibility of receiving Jesus, or the word is not near them. It can't be both. And we have to understand that God is extending, he extended it to Israel, he extends it to the Gentiles. Every single person on the planet has a legitimate call to salvation. But not every single person will receive it, for one reason or another. And we need to be okay with that. He's going to go on and he says, look, he says, you don't say in your heart, who's going to, you know, we need to bring Christ down. We don't, we, or who's going to you know, bring him to us or to say, who's going to raise him from the dead? No, the word of faith says this. It says, look, that God already did it. That I can trust him. 
I don't have to shy away from it. I don't have to reject it. I don't have to, there's none of that for me. And he makes a statement. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the, and this, this has gotten a little weird, I think, over the years sometimes. And, and we can kind of get a little paranoid. Like, well, did they pray out loud? Did they pray out loud? Did anybody hear it? And I think as we read into this, we don't have to get so scared anymore. I think we can kind of maybe understand what's being said here. But the simple truth is this. This is close to any person who wants it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Curious that he's God, that he's the, the, the Lord of the world, the, the, of creation. If you confess that, if you believe that, if, you, if in your heart you acknowledge. And I think that there's something that we have to kind of clarify about belief too. And I think this is true in probably my life and many other people's lives. I don't want to make an absolute rule. But the interesting thing about belief is that we deny what we believe all the time. Like that's kind of a human thing. And so when the idea of belief isn't just, yes, I believe that Jesus lived or something like that, but it's the embracing of saying, yes, I am trusting in what God did for me through Christ at the cross. Not just do I believe that he's real. And, and there's some other verses we could talk about that, but we won't for time's sake, that where there's the challenge that, yeah, even the demons believe and are fearful, but they don't get saved because there isn't this ascension of, yes, I'm appropriating that sacrifice of Christ. I'm taking it for myself, and I'm trusting in that as my righteousness. But he makes this statement that this is what we're to look at. This is what, the, this is what it takes to be saved. A trust that Jesus is the Lord, and a belief that, that God raised him from the dead, which would indicate a righteous life, and then there's salvation. This is also important because what? It's not, it's not believe that he's Lord and that he was raised, and be circumcised. It's not believe that he was Lord and he's raised and be baptized. It's not believe that he's Lord and raised and speak in tongues. There's a million things that people want to tack on to this very simple thing. It's believe and trust. That's, that's what it is. That's what saves a person and that alone. It's so scary though. Like somebody's going to rip off God. Somebody's going to like believe and then sin, and then they're going to get over on God, and he won't stand for that, so he'll... I don't know. One, I don't think anybody can like pull the wool over on God. So I think we can all take a, a deep breath and go, okay, he's not going to get tricked. But then I think after that, what did Jesus really pay for? Did he pay for connivers? Did he pay for all the sin? Did he only pray, pay for like part of the sin? Did he only pay for sins that I've already committed? How would that work? Because if he only paid for the sins that I already committed, and then I have to keep asking for forgiveness for more, well then does that mean he has to keep shedding his blood? Or was the blood shed once? Does the Bible tell us that Christ died once for all? So we have to really, I mean we don't have to do anything I guess, but to really enjoy the salvation that God has given us, to really consider the freedom from sin, the freedom from condemnation, the freedom from judgment from the law, all that we've been reading for these last two months, it's incredible. To be able to go out in peace and to realize that God is for me, that my sin is forgiven, that I don't have to reach back to obscure passages in the law to threaten myself or others. 
but to realize that the, the law ended in Christ for us. And that when I believed in Christ, that, that I died to the law, and I died to my old nature and its power, and I don't have to listen to it anymore. To realize that there's never, there will never be condemnation to the believer ever again. That that's the, secure, the security and the promise of all those logistics of salvation. That that's what it equals to. That I can have fellowship with God. That He doesn't reject me. That He doesn't judge me. He doesn't measure me. He doesn't hold me to what I did last week. That there's fresh grace. His mercies are new every morning. That I have the ability to come into His throne room whenever I want to receive grace and mercy. That's such a great promise out of Hebrews. To come into His throne any time to get grace and mercy. You only get grace and mercy when you need it, right? You know, like if, if you're in court... And, and you're justified in what you did. You don't go, oh, judge, have mercy on me. You'd be like, hey, look at this. Here's me doing nothing in a video. Have a nice day. You know, hopefully not. But you, know, that would, that's, you, don't, you don't throw yourself on the mercy of the court when you're innocent. You only go for mercy and grace when you're hosed, when you have no hope, when it would be legitimate to get the, 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 the sentence. That's when you go, oh, please, I'll never do it again. You have liberty to come into God's presence any time you want without condemnation because of what Jesus did. And we never, we never want to minimize that by obs obscure passage that we take from an old, obsolete ministry of death, fading glory covenant. We're in the new covenant. And that's the one that we latch on to. So the, the Jews, he's in, in, in chapter 10 here, addressing what's going on with the Jews. And he says, look, no, the, the scripture was near them. And now he's going to ask some questions. And, and uh, uh, well, actually he's established that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Uh, there's no differentiation between Jew and Greek. Uh, and then he says in verse 14, how then will they call upon him and who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now in, in, in chapter 10, again, you know, James is just such a big jerk today. In, in chapter 10, in verse 14, we really like to turn to those verses and say, we need gospel preachers. Right? Has anybody else heard it in that context? You like you come to some meeting, you come to church, and they, they read that, and they're like, see, we need gospel preachers. That's true. We do need gospel preachers. And you know what? Apparently you're gonna have gorgeous feet if you preach the gospel. <laughs> right? It's really just an idea of that that you're bringing good news, that, that what you're coming with is 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 excellent. That's that's the idea behind the saying. But this passage is not saying we need preachers. This passage is, is, is congruent with the whole rest of the chapter, which is Paul talking about the fact that were the Jews let down? Did they have speakers? And so he's asking the rhetorical questions, the same kind of questions he's been asking all through Romans. And so he's saying, well, hey, how could they call? How could the Jews call upon them if they didn't have anybody talking about it? And if, and if there wasn't anybody talking about it, how could they talk about it unless somebody sends them? So he's making a case, or what could be a case that someone might say, in order to say the Jews never really had a chance. 
We know that's what he's saying, especially from the context above. But below, in verse 18, he says, but I ask. In the Greek, it means, but I ask. In other words, when you say but, what are you doing? You're making an exception, right? You're saying blah, 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 but, you know, we went to Disneyland, we did this, we did that, but it was incredibly hot out and I hated it, right? So what you're saying is that this is in contrast to what I've just said. And so he's saying you could ask these questions. What about this? Was there someone to, was there someone to, to tell them? Did someone uh, equip them to tell them? Did someone send them to tell them? Did, how did, did, and then he says, but I, but I ask. So in other words, Paul is making a rebuttal to the possibility that no one was there to tell Israel. And he says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. So he's answering the above argument, including his own. Does that make sense? And he's saying, but I ask, have they not heard? And then he answers himself, indeed they have. And now he's going to quote uh, from the Old Testament. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and, the, and their words to the end of the world. So in answer to has Israel been um, told these things, the answer is yes. Even from their own law and their own covenant, they were told about the coming Messiah, that there would be one that would take away the sin of the world, that would do these things. They knew that that's what Messiah was coming for, even from their Old Testament scriptures. Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? So he, he, he poses the question, well, well, okay, there were people there that could tell them what's going on, but maybe they didn't understand. Maybe they didn't know what they were saying. And he says, first, Moses said, so the first answer, he says this, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So congratulations, you're a foolish nation. <laughs> the first answer that God gives is this. I'm going to take Gentiles. The idea was foolish, not in like you're all a bunch of idiots or something like that, but, but foolish in the sense of not knowing God. And so he says, I'm going to, the first demonstration that Paul says is, yeah, they knew because God used Gentiles to show them. And, and that's different ways, different times. You might recall where Jesus, uh, they want to, at one point, the Pharisees want to kill Jesus because he tells them, he says, if you remember back to the days of Elijah, there was only one leper cleansed, and it was Naaman, a Syrian. And so basically what he tells the Jews, he says, you guys could have had all this leper cleansing. You never took advantage of it. The only person in the Old Covenant who was ever healed of leprosy was a Syrian, your worst enemy. And they're all like, oh, no, you didn't. And they go to kill him. So that you have these prophecies where he says, hey, look, I raised up people from Gentile nations to make you jealous to follow after me. Then he says in verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So this is not only true of Gentiles, but of Jews. He says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm revealing myself, right? And he says to Gentiles, I revealed myself. Then in verse 21, he says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands for a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul kind of, he concludes this section. He says, look, so the whole, chapter 10 is primarily all about Israel and God's working and, how, and their response to the gospel and these different things. And, but he's finalized it. He's even though, and, and I think that this is, this is a, an opinion, so feel free to throw it away. But I think that that's why he qualifies in the beginning of chapter 10. And he says, I want you to know that my heart is that these people will get saved. But this is actually how it went down. They rejected God. They've rejected God over and over and over and over and over again for millennia. 
And he says, I want him to be saved. But this is God's commentary. All day long, I've held my hands out to a disobedient and a contrary people. So does this mean we despise them as a nation? Does this mean we hate them? Does this mean No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. I mean, it's just, this is just an education for us to understand what went down with Israel, why they, why they rejected God. They sought a righteousness of their own. They tried to make themselves righteous. And in trying to make themselves righteous, they became pompous and rude. And, and basically, they never fulfilled what God had for them. Not just the promised land, but that they would be a light to the nations. That's what God wanted in Israel. They weren't to just, just go around and trash everyone. The, the genocides that occurred when Israel came out of Egypt was to destroy people groups who had gotten so ingrained in sin that God in his sovereignty said, they're not going to come back from that. And so they destroyed those nations to preserve a lineage of Christ so that the world could be saved. Which for some of us must be like, God did that? He did do that. And again, that's just evidence of our fickleness. Because on the one hand, we're like, God, why why don't you do anything about what's going on? And then he does, and we're like, God, how could you do that? (laughs) We were wild. And so what happens is God, those nations are, are eradicated for the most part. And then from that position, they were to be a light to the whole world of the coming Messiah that would deal with sin. But instead, they sought a righteousness based on their own thing. And so the parallel for us as a church, we can do the same thing. We can have Christ, and, and, and we can intellectually understand that, yes, you know, the, the, the Christ is the end of the law for me, that, that my salvation is purely based on what he did, and there's no works involved. I just trusted him, and it was a free gift to me. But then we can start, it's weird, once we kind of get cleaned up a little bit, right, once we start kind of walking with the Lord, and we're like, oh, wow, well, okay, I'm walking with the Lord, you know, I'm not, I'm not smoking anymore, or you know, whatever, I don't care, just fill in the blank, some habit that we don't like, or, you know, whatever. And then we're like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. And then we can meet people and be like, hey, you can do good like me. Right? I've been doing good. I have a morning time. I kick some bad habits. You know, I'm an usher at my church. Come be like me. Because that's the end of seeking our own righteousness. But the righteousness is by faith just says, no, it's Jesus. Every messed up person out there, it's, it's Jesus. And anybody can be saved. Anybody can. And it's near you. It's not far from you. God's not trying to make it hard for you. It's simply, Lord, have mercy on me. It's simply, Lord, you're the Lord. It says, with the heart one believes. I didn't really go over that part for time's sake, but it says, with the heart one believes and is justified. It's the heart. So what do we come away with today? Never read the Old Testament. No, I'm, that's not what we're coming I'm not saying that. We're going through the Old Testament on Thursday. What do we come away with? We don't drag up Old Covenant stuff and apply it to people. It's a huge disservice. We can appreciate the promises, but they're not for us. We have our own promises. Great, and Peter calls them great and exceedingly precious promises that we have. We have an amazing, amazing truths that, that we get to walk in. We can appreciate what Israel went through and we can say, I'd, I'd like to mimic that in my life or I would not like to mimic that in my life. We can read and be encouraged and all those things. But for us, what we walk away with today is that you're set free. He's literally set you free from the curse of the law, 
or, or what we bring upon ourselves as a curse and from the con condemnation from God. We're set free from the power of sin and all the, the terrible things that it reaps in our lives. We're set free from having to worry about is God condemning me because he's not, because the law doesn't apply to you. You can't be condemned. That's what we read in the end of chapter 8, right? What can separate us from the love of God? Short answer, nothing. So when you go out of this place or when you go get your clam chowder or whatever we're having today, I don't mean that to belittle it. I just mean I don't really know. Eat it freely. Go out of here freely. If you're going to go watch the Super Bowl, watch it freely. You're going to go home and take a nap? Nap freely. <laughs> That's my plan. You know, because you're free. But, but after you do that, serve God freely. Ask for the leading of the Holy Spirit freely. Ask for wisdom freely. Ask for God's love in your heart freely. You have an amazing freedom in Christ, and we're called to exercise it in love. So God bless you guys. And I, I hope that as you go out of here in this place, that you go with a weight off your shoulders as believers. If you're not a believer today and you've kind of rejected Jesus or just said no to the forgiveness, tomorrow will not be better. It'll be worse. And every day will be worse to the unbeliever, to those of us who had said no. Not because God is terrible and he was trying to stick it to the man, but because every day without Christ gets worse and worse because we're just left with ourselves. You want to I'm not, this might be controversial and you can disagree with me. We have a lot of imagery about flames in hell, right? Burning and these type of things. And that may be, that may be, I don't know. Personally, I don't think the torment of hell is flames and canker worms, although that's literally the imagery that's given us. I think the burning of hell is that you will eternally sit and know what you, where you could have been and what you could have had and that you chose not to have it for whatever prideful reason. I think that's the, the torment of hell, is realizing, realizing that for eternity, you chose over Jesus' dead body to be away from God. I think that's going to be way worse than flames. That's just an opinion. It could be both. I don't know. Uh, both are very disappointing, the way, the, however you slice it. But, but if you don't know Christ, receive him. If you have issues that you want to talk about, come talk about them. If you don't know Christ, don't walk out of here going, well, I don't know. I mean, we'll find out. You'll find out. But you don't want it to be because you died or because you stood before him. He has great things for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness, your mercy. Thanks for the food that we're going to get to eat today. Lord, thanks for all your blessings, physical and spiritual. Lord, we do thank you for a, a few days of sunshine in a row. Well, we appreciate that. But Lord, we appreciate that you're faithful when it rains, faithful when it pours, you're faithful when it's hot or cold. You're always faithful. Thank you that you've always provided for us. Thank you for our salvation given so freely and it costing so much at Calvary. Lord, thanks for these folks, their desire to seek you out. And I pray your blessing upon them. Your spirit will go with them. And I pray we just have a great time fellowshipping at lunch. Lord, may you be glorified in our hearts and uh, in our uh, minds and conversation. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.